Of course, I have sometimes thought of going away, but I imagine that as a kind of holiday, a series of adventures like Bilbo's or better, ending in peace. But this would mean exile, a flight from danger into danger, drawing it after me. And I suppose I must go alone, if I am to do that and save the Shire. But I feel very small, and very uprooted, and well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. He did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart and even perhaps to find him again. It was so strong that it overcame his fear. He could almost have run out there and then down the road without his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar morning long ago. My dear Frodo, exclaimed Gandalf, hobbits really are amazing creatures, as I have said before. You can learn all there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet, after a hundred years, they can still surprise you at a pinch. I hardly expected to get such an answer, not even from you. But Bilbo made no mistake in choosing his heir, though he little thought how important it would prove. I am afraid you are right. The ring will not be able to stay hidden in the Shire much longer. And for your own sake, as well as for others, you will have to go and leave the name of Baggins behind you. That name will not be safe to have outside the Shire or in the wild. I will give you a traveling name now. When you go, go as Mr. Underhill. But I don't think you need go alone. Not if you know of anyone you can trust, and who would be willing to go by your side, and that you would be willing to take into unknown perils. But if you look for a companion, be careful in choosing, and be careful of what you say, even to your closest friends. The enemy has many spies and many ways of hearing. The Way Lesser Inklings podcast exists to pay tribute to the great writers, thinkers, and philosophers of the 20th century known as the Inklings, and to inspire a love of great literature by mining the depths of great works to identify the good, the true, and the beautiful, and illustrate great storytelling. Welcome back to the Way Lesser Inklings podcast. My name is Josh Rice, and with me again is Jake. We'll do the customary disembodied voice. Say hi, Jake. Hello. <laughs> We're here um, taking a break from the grind a little bit. So what we did is we just finished uh, book one. Tolkien broke the trilogy into six different books. And so we, with the flight to the Ford, we just completed that. And so we're, we're going to, at the end of each of these books, take a little chance to unwind a little bit to recap. So this is one of those that I want you to, you know, slip into a sport jacket, sit in your lounge chair, get a pipe with your best tobacco weed and maybe pour two fingers of bourbon or get you a, a dark porter, something like that. And if you're a kid, don't do any of that. Maybe get you a Snickers bar or something. And uh, and sit there and listen to the dulcet tones of of us talking about the journey through the last. What did we do? Uh, now I'm going to get in trouble. I think we've done yeah. 13 episodes, so this is number 14. Um, I don't want to lose my spot here. So what the way this is going to work is we're going to just kind of fire some questions back and forth each other and talk about what stuck out from this book, what we liked, that sort of thing. So I'm going to lead it off, and and Jake, I'm just going to I got to. I'm going to combine a few into one. I'm going to ask you, um, what's your favorite part about getting into podcasting? What was the hardest part of getting into podcasting? And what's been the biggest surprise for you in doing a podcast? Yeah. Uh, I think the hardest part is the easiest one to answer for me. And I think it's just working through some of the technical issues. It's funny because like we're literally just talking to each other. We're not doing anything fancy. There's no graphics. There's no sound effects, and 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 re like we didn't do a lot of prep at the beginning. Like I had a microphone, and you you were a little more set up because you've done this before. But we just slapped on some mics and started going, and 
you know, I think it's been, it probably took six, like we've, we've had some ups and downs with audio and trying to figure that like, and again, not being engineers or professionals in that regard either. It's, uh, just trying to find, you know, that balance, I think to me stands out as the, as the trickiest thing that we've encountered. Um, and so I think that's, I think really that has been the hardest part for me. Mm. Um, yeah. And then I think, uh, so one of your, so the biggest surprise, I think, um, I think the biggest surprise to me is really has been how easy it's been to carry on the conversation. That was something that I was extremely nervous about, uh, at the beginning. And, you know, when you, and like with radio, you know, we grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh and, you know, some of those guys like commentators and I listened to other podcasts and, and like, I got like rush just made it sound so easy. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, man, there's never dead air. He is extremely humorous and, you know, and so like, obviously he's a great talent and, <laughs> and that's part of it. But I, like I feel like we've just had a really easy time of conversing and I was really shocked by that. Mm. That's something I might turn back at you. What's been, cause you've done another podcast. Like what's been your biggest surprise for this one? Yeah, I, I think I echo the hardest part, which is kind of surprising in a way that it's one of the things that this one's way different. Cause the other podcasts I do, we're in the same room looking at each other. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's hard to get sound quality, I think over video and that sort of thing. Um, the biggest surprise to me is going to sound strange. I'm going to I'm going to relay it to the story that we've been doing, but also kind of what you said. I think the biggest surprise to me is just how insanely great The Lord of the Rings is and and how mm-hmm. um it's it's easy to talk about because there is so much to talk about. And I think that doing this what what surprised me about this is that I think every one of our episodes could have been twice as long and not really felt very stretched. And, and some of them, like, I think there's a few chapters that we could have literally gone on for three hours. And yeah. I, I think that what we were doing was hustling along, looking at the clock. No, we don't want to put three hour podcast out. We don't, you know, we're recording right. them later at night. So we don't have time to do that. I think, I think that's been the surprise is just how much there is to do and, and really how enjoyable it is to look at a great story this way. And, and I think, yeah, it's it's something that we talked about doing for a really long time. It felt like that it's been something that has been like on a back burner for probably years, and yeah. and once it finally got going, I think there was a lot of perseverance to kind of get through some of those hurdles, and it's been easy to do that because it's been so enjoyable to talk about the story. and And I know we had said from the beginning, like it's it's nice. Like I, I do want people to maybe see a different angle of the story, see the beauty of them, see something that maybe they hadn't seen before. But really this is for us, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, like if, right. if five people were listening to it, I would still do it. Uh, Cause I think yeah. that the, the goal behind it is to really have something to pass to our kids someday. Like I, I wish that I had a recorder and listened to my dad, could listen to my dad teaching some run of the mill classes in high school. You know, I have mm-hmm. some, I have some vague memories of the high points. Um, you know, I wish I had recordings of my childhood pastor. I would love to listen to mm-hmm. some sermons from back then and and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think the the surprise is just how 
the book that's my favorite of all time by quite a long ways has exceeded my own expectations on this kind of <laughs> right. this kind of read through and and that's been a lot of fun. So yeah, the the last part of that was what the uh, uh, yeah, favorite the, hardest biggest surprise. What what's your uh, yeah favorite thing about the podcast? Yeah, I do. I think um, I think my favorite part is a little bit tacked on to your biggest surprise like is definitely the greatness of Lord of the Rings but I think what it and something we've stated multiple times but my favorite part is how it's challenging me to to engage with other um, art this way is when I like when I listen to music watch movies or shows or read or I'm reading other books I have a I'm I have a more I won't say maybe critical, like a more critical eye, but I think just a more open eye, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm, I'm really more aware of themes or what characters are trying, like what writers are trying to do with characters. And again, maybe, you know, maybe I'm reading farther into it than they intended sometimes, but, but I do think that like, that's what art is for. Art is to push beauty uh, and creativity um, to, and to 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 display God's good creation um, in a sub-creation kind of way, and Tolkien was very specific about that in his work. Um, but but that's that's been my favorite part as I've engaged with other uh, art mediums and how this project has has strengthened me in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's probably your turn. I mm-hmm. I gave a three part there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna um, so I'm gonna move into questions uh, about about the story, and so I think my um, I'm gonna kick it off with a bang and go with uh, what was um, what was your most tense moment uh, in reading this this first part? Hmm. I th- I think that the obvious answer would be something in a knife in the dark, but. I think it actually might have been the the moody part of I think it's in um it's in a conspiracy unmasked is at the at the beginning of that chapter they've they're crossing brandywine I think and mm-hmm. there there's a whole moody thing that I felt tense because it was basically the hobbits leaving everything they've known. Tolkien, I think, gave a lot of foreshadowing that we saw later about fog coming up off the water, about like the mm-hmm. swirling depths of it. And I think all mishmashed in that is the idea of they had just, you know, they had gotten off the wagon and it, it, with Farmer Maggot at the end of the chapter before had taken them to the to the ferry and they saw a shadowy figure on the on the dock, basically crouch down so there's the idea of the enemy is directly behind you and you're about to leave everything you've had i think i think that would be that's kind of an artistic answer i think maybe another good one would be somewhere along where they get off the road for the first time Mm -hmm. because it seems like everything is so good you know you they're just camping out having fun and then this black rider comes and evil just inserts itself into the story i think that's really tense how about you? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, that's a pretty easy one for me. Um, just cause like I could physically f- feel it. My chest was pounding, like almost had a shiver. 
down my spine, which it was in the knife in the dark um, at the the raid on Crick Hollow, and like he sets the scene so so beautifully, where you know the the riders almost you know shadow like down the lane, where they're really not visible, but you can just feel their presence. And then he writes about like if there's a tactical element too, where he writes about one at the door and two at the corner, mm-hmm. you know, and the the gleam of their sword uh in the night and it's just and it's like and so there's one the terror of them the writing of the situation um and then i think the helplessness of fatty Mm -hmm. like you (laughs) you know and so i think i think all three of those elements in play just make that an extremely scary scene Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a really good one i i think as as far as being memorable writing i think to me that that was the part that really blew me away in this first book. I think that exact scene, it is, it is just, it's chilling. It's incredible. Mm. It, it's just perfection. It, it, yeah. it really is. Um, so I'll jump into a few character things here and then we'll kind of probably yeah. start breaking down. So I've got, uh, here's one for you. So yeah. in the NBA, they give you the, the sixth man of the year. It's kind of like a bench player. So, so my question would be, who do you think the the sixth man of the year was in book one, that role player? I think, yeah, I think for me, this is a really easy one too. Uh, I think it's Mary, um, because he comes in, you know, he really comes in what at right at the end of Shortcut, but really in Conspiracy Unmasked. So he's like a vague character early on. He doesn't come in till that point. But from there, like he takes the lead in running them to Old Forest. He has wisdom, um, I think worldly wisdom that they they don't have. And so he, and I think for me, he kind of came out of nowhere, mm. right? And it's like he he came off the bench and scored twenty five points, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> I, like I was like I I again reading this multiple times. Um, Mary was a character that I had I had really misremembered in in much of my my reading this mm-hmm. and so he was he was a pretty easy choice for me for for that role what about you well that's that's interesting that you would say that because it, it almost goes back to that first question about the surprising thing I, i'll tell you what's surprising about the podcasting is what i'm gonna z- exemplify right here is there was a you you kind of get almost there in your reading with a lot of stuff and then having the conversation you have these these light bulbs go off where you know, you'll say something that puts it in such a way that it was almost like I was looking for something in the dark, like I couldn't quite get there. And then you said this thing and it just unlocks the whole thought. And I, I think mm. I think that makes the podcast somewhat unpredictable because that happens and it's not on a script. It's like, oh, and then we go in a completely different direction for like 10 minutes. Yeah. This The reason I brought that up is because you said it was so easy. For me, this question is also <laughs> insanely easy. Like I thought of it. Okay. I thought there was no way that you were going to do anything other than this. And and so the, my answer is Gildor. And okay. the, the reason why is because Gildor comes in and he's, he's like barely in it. Uh, he he's, mm-hmm. he's in it like, you know what? Three or four pages. And yeah, he like, he cast a specter over the rest of the book. It's like everybody knows that they're on the road because Gildor sent these messages. Like Gildor gives them the indication of what these black riders are. Like Gildor almost like 
pushes them on their way and has sent the messages out. Like I think Gildor is like Reggie Miller in that 1990s game where like he scores uh-huh. eight points in in like nine seconds. Right. <laughs> yeah. he, he almost like saves the quest in like in less than 1% of the writing of this chapter. It's, it's pretty amazing. Right. No, I, I, I love that. And I think I, I kind of had another place reserved for him in, <laughs> in my thought process work because I think, and some of that may just be like, because I've played a lot of basketball, like a really good sixth man gets a lot of minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so maybe I should have called him the best supporting actor because what will happen is is that they'll, they'll give to Oscar to somebody who's in one scene in the movie. That's that's uh-huh. the best supporting actor. So there you go, Gildor. Right. I'll rename it for me. He's the best supporting yeah. actor. <laughs> right. I yeah. think it's your turn, isn't it? See if I if if I went along, uh, kind of. I think if we stay in the character lane, um, and and even with the basketball theme, I would have said. Uh, and this, the answer for me to this question is Gildor, but it's who's your microwave? Uh. <laughs> he, he comes in, he comes in hot and ready. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, wow. Okay. That one actually I'm not prepped for. So let me tell you the first thing that come to mind. And I think it's a pretty good one. I think I'm going with Barra White. Oh, so the, it, we're going to find out very soon, like in book two, that, in Gandalf's estimation, the most dangerous part of book one was the Barrow White business. So the Barrow White comes in and he basically puts the whole quest in danger. And he's, he has what one line. Yeah. So I think a poem. I think the Barrow White could ruin the whole thing. That's a real microwave guy. Like, you know, you yeah. got the the Nazgul or the the Ring Race falling around all over the place, but the Barrow White gets closer to ending the whole thing than they do, and he gets like mm-hmm. one page. <laughs> yeah. So that's my microwave guy, Barrow White. No. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good answer. I think um, I think it in kind of the same reasoning as why Gildor is for me is like he shows up on the road, and you know Frodo makes a comment because they're singing about um, Elbereth. And he's like, he pins them as high elves and that they're rarely, if ever in the Shire and most of them aren't even in middle earth anymore. And so he, you know, he shows up at a critical point and then, you know, does all the things that you said. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, he's the, uh, they're like, they're the, the yin and yang. If you're into that, you know, pagan religion stuff, the barrel white on the bad side and, and uh Gildor on the good side. So, uh, who, who's yes, your, it's your turn? I think. Yeah. Who is your uh, who's your favorite character in this book? Yeah. Um, so I think that my favorite character is going to have to be Aragorn. Um, we spent basically two entire chapters talking one probably exclusively about him, and and another chapter about eighty percent about him, and. And he is, he's long been my favorite character. Uh, and even, even in this reread, uh, he, he still, he still is. I just, I love, I I mean, I think I love everything about him. I love, I love his kingliness, but I love his gentleness at the same time. Like one of the things that we pegged big time is his, um, I think is his hard hitting truthfulness. Uh, and it, it really is, uh, it really is like a punch in the gut when you encounter him. And, but it's, it's like, it's one of those love things. And one thing you said in one of our podcasts was talking about, um, Captain Jack and master and commander. 
It's like it's a character that you just love because he's so manly, but he's he is caring. He's dedicated to mission. He has all these guys looking to him, and he never wavers. And and I and Aragorn carries all those traits, and and even to a higher degree than that character does. And he's just I I don't know. He's like he's kind of the pinnacle of characters for me. Mm. <laughs> so who would be your favorite character in this section? Um. It, it's tough, but I I think that I'm gonna go with favorite. I'm gonna go with Bombadil. I I'm it, Wiley's book. I think had a lot to do it, but I think it's not so much Wiley's book holding my hand into what to think. I think that what Wiley's book did is taught me how to look, and hmm. I think so. So reading back, I think that there's observations that I had that that Wiley didn't come to because he kind of prepared the way, right? Gave me gave me a path to go on. And I think why Bombadil is my favorite character in this book is because he he shows what um godly dominion is supposed to look like. It it's about yeah. it's about knowing your place. It's about mo- being cheerful. I, I get in these stories, I can get really lured into um attaching to what I deem to be cool. <laughs> so Really sadly, that's always been the Nazgul in in this book mm. for me. The the ring race, like I I'm spellbound by their the, their terror, their scariness, like their their understatedness. But I think Bombadil, we get a lot about him. He he does get fleshed out. It's mysterious about what he is, but his motivations and his worldview and what he does is not mysterious at all. And I think when people say they don't get Bombadil, I think it is probably because we don't really know where to look. And I think he's mm-hmm. so he's such a culture clash with what we find in. And I think he was a statement by Tolkien, kind of a cautionary tale about, hey, it's not about Dominion's not exerted by going across Europe and digging trenches and fighting each other and shooting back and forth. Dominion is accomplished by taking care of your home, by being joyful, by singing songs. And mm-hmm. to those end, I, he it's Tolkien. I think we've said it often. He's undoubtedly the most powerful character that we've come across. I think he's probably the most yeah. powerful character we'll see. And yet he doesn't act like what we would expect a powerful character to act like. We, we would expect it to be a bunch of bombast and magic, but really, right. with with Bombadil, what it is is about keeping his garden, trimming the hedges, you know, getting lilies for his wife, and yeah. and being the master, like exerting yeah. that godly dominion. He's he's my favorite character of this book, and and one that I really I think thought about the most because I was I was really enamored with him. It's it's he's interesting. Yeah, I think it's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> Is it my turn? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm going to steal this actually, uh, I think one of your questions, but I'm going to steal it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it works for me. Yeah. Because um, just to stay in the character lane um, for a little bit longer is, so who's your MVP of of book one? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's got to be Frodo. Um Frodo is one that I think in adaptation, he he actually fights against all those things that I talked about in that last bit about being drawn to what's cool and being drawn to like spectacle and that sort of stuff. I think Frodo is the exact opposite of that. What what Frodo mm-hmm. is, is that he is honest. He loves his friends. He's stern and, and dedicated to the task. He cares about his loved ones more than himself. 
He he's perfectly willing to go face any danger by himself. He really hesitates, doesn't want to bring his friends into danger. He knows that he has a job to do. And he's going to do it. He's, you know, I think I think our all the guys, all the all the characters that would have been a contender for this kind of thing display hierarchy and masculinity, which is a real theme mm-hmm. of the story. Frodo is clearly the leader of the hobbits. It's yeah. not it's not only because he has the ring either. It's because he's the best of the hobbits. He is he's one that's written their he's written the history, he's learned, he's walked all over the Shire, you know, he's gotten himself back into fighting shape now as as Pippin reminds him, you know, when he backed off from the table a little bit and I think yeah. he just he displays a lot of wisdom and he has he's he's far more sorely tempted than everyone else in the story. I don't I don't think anyone has the weight on them that Frodo has in the story and he just he bears up time and time again and yeah. does it without complaining. You know, he does a little yeah. bit of that with Gandalf, but once he's on the road, there's no more complaining anymore. It's about yeah. we got to get there and get it done. Yeah. How about yeah. you? Um yeah, I think same answer uh and and, you know, I think you did a great job explaining a lot of the reasons why. And I think really the only thing I would add to it is to is like even when there's a few moments where Frodo also makes mistakes, which right, which like you said, it, he's the greatest of the hobbits. Um, but he he sins. Right. He he falls short and, you know, and he's not crushed by the weight of it, but he like he turns from it. You know, when he puts on the ring in Knife in the Dark and takes the wound, you know, like he repents of that move. You know, he says, I never should have done that. And then he fights the darkness to the end until he can get healed. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I love the sternness of Frodo. And it is it's a it's a it's a different kind than we get from the other powerful, you know, the powerful characters. But Frodo is really powerful because he has such a resistance to evil. Mm-hmm. So. What did you think was we're we're talking about always the true, the good, and the beautiful. What what did you think mm-hmm. was the most beautiful moment from book one? Yeah. Uh good question. I, I think um I think Bombadil's scene uh is is the most beautiful and I think it's I think it's the you know, what you talked about with Dominion uh, I know. I think. I think there are a lot of overlaps in what we saw together. And of course, we've we've talked about all of them. But they uh, like the Bombadil scene is just the truest picture of um, of dominion and and headship and leadership. Um, and you know, I think uh, and wisdom, right? And I think like we both agree. We both believe that he's the most powerful being left in middle earth and you know and he he doesn't lord it over anyone right like his his greatest enemy in his domain is old man willow and you know instead of cutting him down and burning him he you know he leaves him there and talks him out of his evil you know when 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 needed Mm -hmm. um and so i think he stands out really clearly for me as something that's that's really true about what we're made to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. I think my my answer to that is from conspiracy unmasked. It's when the uh, when the hobbits are telling Frodo about their plan unfolding, and Frodo says, um, "I don't 
I don't see how I can trust any of you. And Mary tells him, it depends on what you mean by trust. Hmm. If we're your friends, Frodo, and we would follow you to the end, to death. I think, I think that the whole first half of this book really leads up to that kind of moment where there's this beautiful display of loyalty and friendship and courage because the because Mary Mary and Sam especially don't really know what's coming but they know that they have a duty to their friend and they're going to they're going to go ahead and do that i i think that it's it's an amazing thing that i think in the history of the hobbits would be an unexpected thing the the way Tolkien writes their culture that that these really are guys that are bound together by love and brotherhood and I think that's really beautiful. I think we saw shades of it with Frodo and Gandalf earlier and with Bilbo and Gandalf that that Gandalf that the Gandalf has a real friendship with them and and it builds in mm-hmm. these pebbles and I think I think the real climax of that is that moment in a conspiracy amassed where where it really is like no we're we're together to the end and we're going to see that that loyalty is going to result in great deeds as the yeah. as the story unfolds and i think it all goes back to kind of that that root thing of friendship brotherhood loyalty courage that mm-hmm. you know that you don't have to be big and mighty to have courage that that courage yeah. is about doing the job that's in front of you i that struck me when we did it i think that's one of those chapters that i was just kind of amazed at how fun it was to do cuz you know people think that stuff's boring <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they really do. I think three is company. I think it's conspiracy and mass old forest. I think that's a section where people kind of get sidetracked. And I, I think that that is because it's missing the point. I, I think there's really foundational stuff being laid in those chapters that it is going to pay off to those who are patient and, and who know where to look. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay. I think it's my turn. All right. So what was your favorite quote? Uh, for this section. All right. Teeing me up for this one because this, this will be the return of the fox. <laughs> okay. No, okay. no, I'm kidding about that. But it is similar, and that's what got me thinking. I was thinking about, is there any way that I could make bring the fox into this? And you can, you can always bring him into book one. We thought he was gone, but he's back. Here it is. I, I love this because it's, it's Bombadil. Bombadil to a T. And here's it's, – it's when um, – Bombadil has put the ring on. Nothing happened. He flicks it up in the air. It disappears for a second. And then he hands it back to Frodo. And when he hands it back to Frodo, it it says, Frodo was perhaps a trifle annoyed with Tom for seeming to make so light of what even Gandalf thought so perilously important. He waited for an opportunity when the talk was going again. And Tom was telling an absurd story about badgers and their queer ways. Then he slipped the <laughs> ring on. Mm-hmm. I that's That's my favorite quote because... It's really everything about Bombadil in such a funny and easy, breezy way that Tolkien writes it. Because essentially, Tom Bombadil holds the doom of man in his hands. Uh He flicks it on, puts it up like a circus trick, and then hands it back. And then he gets back to the really important business of talking about badgers. (laughs) And I, I will say that I think there was a clue in that, that what Tolkien is saying is that all the lives of what's going on in the world have their own rhythm and their own important thing. So the fox that they run into that says, whoa, that's weird seeing hobbits out here, and he never gets an answer. I think we almost get to the conclusion of that story that, that Bombadil is really actually very interested 
in what's going on with all those seemingly mundane things. And I think it speaks to the way he has he has a lot of care for what his task is. And his task is to to mine the forest. And so what the badgers are doing is really important to him. More important than this thing that's outside of his dominion and outside of his responsibility. And that's that's my favorite quote. I think it's Bombadil to a T. Yeah. I was uh, I was waiting. I was curious if you were going to insert the fox <laughs> anywhere in this. I, I had a I had an inkling. It's going to get increasingly <laughs> difficult to do fox from now on. So, <laughs> right, yeah. So, what was uh, your favorite quote? Yeah, I think my favorite quote is uh, is actually from the very first chapter, a long expected party, and it's in it's in the. Uh, the interchange between Bilbo and Gandalf when they're uh, so Bilbo's you know starting to get um, a little bit agitated with Gandalf pushing him on the ring, um, but he he eventually you know he eventually says, "But I expect you know best as usual," um, and Gandalf responds, "I do when I know anything," and and I think <laughs> it's kind of a funny it's it's a funny line. It struck me as funny. Uh, it always kind of has, um, but I, I think th- there's again that element of friendship and trust that uh, you know we know that the ring is um, is changing Bilbo and it's a, it's pushing him, but he's still he's still innocent enough to trust the counsel of his friend, you know, beyond the pull of the power of the ring. And, and, and I think like, and it's, and it's also not wrong of Gandalf to acknowledge his wisdom, like to say, I, I do know, like when I know, or to acknowledge, like in my area, I do know what's best. And, um, and, and I just love that little interplay. Like, I don't think, I don't think it's pride from Gandalf. I think it's recognizing who he is and what he's for. Um, and I don't know, it's always been like a kind of funny, but also really important and beautiful scene. Hmm. Well, I'm going to, I was going to ask you what your favorite song is, because I think sometimes people criminally skip past the songs which i yeah hopefully we've done a good job with i i hope to do a better job as we go of talking about why they're important like why they're mm-hmm. why they're in here so what jumped yeah. out to you what was your favorite one yeah so there were two okay um uh the the i'm gonna give you my final answer second so the the other one that was in the running is the tale of tenuviel mm. um and these two like instantly popped to me um and the other, the other one is a shorter song that Frodo sings, uh, that, that Bilbo wrote, I believe. Uh, but it's, it's the road and I'm going to read the whole one because yep. it's pretty short. The road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Now far ahead, the road has gone and I must follow if I can pursuing it with weary feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet and whither then I cannot say. And it's like, obviously, there's Tolkien's ability to write poetry or, you know, write music is just blows me away. Um, and that's where I think the tale of Tenuviel is just mm-hmm. is just so powerful. Um, but this one, I think this one is because that one's a, a historical tale. And, and obviously he made up the history, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, it's 
like this one's a little bit more metaphorical, I think. And mm-hmm. it's pointing to, right. He like, there's a, there's a journey that, that he had, that Frodo has to go on that his weary feet don't change the fact that he has to go on the journey and that he knows that he's like, and we see even in this part, his path joins up with Gildor and it joins up with farmer maggot and Mm -hmm. it joins up with Bombadil and it joins up with Strider and it joins up with Glorfindel and, you know, and they land in Rivendell and, and whither then we get to find out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really Um, good one. I, you know, I'll give a rare shout out here. I don't think we've talked about it. I, I cannot unhear the Rankin Bass cartoon version of the road goes ever, ever on. I really do think they did a good job with that one. Like it, it's, yeah. it's kind of soulful. So you'll be happy. Cause my favorite song from this one actually is the lay of Baron and Luthien. I'm going to yeah. read a section of it and explain why, okay. um, just three stanzas and I think it's because they go together again she fled but swift he came to Nuviel to Nuviel he called her by her elvish name and there she halted listening one moment stood she and a spell his voice laid on her Baron came and doom fell on Nuviel that in his arms lay glistening as Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair the trembling starlight of the skies he saw there mirrored shimmering Tenuviel the elven fair immortal maiden elven wise about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering long was the way that fate then bore o'er stony mountains cold and gray through halls of iron and darkling door and woods of nightshade moralless the sundering seas between them lay and yet at last they met once more and long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless so mm-hmm. here's what struck me about it i i picked it because i think it encapsulates the heart of tolkien's story and so i explain that we we expect in our culture that what happens is that a man gets spellbound and smitten by a woman that's that's like that's mythology it's old you know norse mythology we kind of played with that with the way bombadil got goldberry you know in the story and i think this this does it the same way where aragorn's hope is to be like baron but it's interesting here because the prime mover here is baron baron looks at tenuviel he calls her name and then when she hears his voice it says that doom fell on her which literally means death fell on her because what happened Mm -hmm. is is that his voice lured her that it it moved her and she loved him and that was going to be the end of her immortality in her life which is very interesting because we know from the history that the next the next stanza talks all about her hair the shadow of her hair that she weaves enchantments that even put sauron to sleep and Morgoth to mm-hmm. sleep in the story with her singing in her hair. But Baron was not put to sleep and Baron was not spellbound. He just saw the woman that he was going to love, that he was going to um, betroth himself to. And then it's the tragic story of how the difference in their kinds puts this bat- big expanse between them. But it's kind of like it's it's not hopeless because – they were so great and they did such great deeds that they were joined together in a, in kind of a eternal hope at the end of it. So I, I think, I think it's the heart of the story because it shows how men are supposed to act and how there's always hope with the bonds of friendship because God is good. Mm-hmm. Cause there's a creator, there's a purpose behind everything. There's an order to everything. And it is truly the hope of Aragorn when he sings this song in, 
you know, in the knife in the dark that it really is like, it's, it's melancholy to him because he hopes for something that he doesn't, he's not assured that he's going to get. And it's much like Baron. Baron had to go on a huge quest in order to have the hand of Luthien and that quest claims his life. And Aragorn knows very well that the quest that he's on may end in death and, and loss and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's just a, it's a beautiful song. Hopefully, hopefully that explanation and your explanation to of road goes ever over on kind of explains how Tolkien uses songs to say a whole lot in a really small space. When, when I was a kid, I yeah. skipped through them probably yeah. cause I couldn't understand. And I, and I think that what he does actually is it's almost like using quotes. Like when you use quotes, it's to say a lot with a very few words. And I think his songs say yeah. a whole lot with not very much time. Yeah. I, I think to, couple of thoughts to add on to that. I think first, particularly with the Baron and Luthien story, is there there's there's a role for each two is that Baron leads, but Luthien supports him in his mission. Mm-hmm. Right. And and their mission is, you know, is um is like I don't know, is pretty perilous. <laughs> and but she's along with him and and I think there's an element of <clears throat> the the role of submission to his headship that's that's there as well on the surface mm-hmm. um i just wanted to throw that in there i think the other part though that that for me stands out with the songs um is that i i think that songs and art in particular do help in shaping culture and and it's it's really it's really fun in this section because most of the songs early on are Right, are sung by hobbits and they're really cheerful and playful mm-hmm. and um you know they're singing songs about drinking beer they're singing they've got bath songs they've you know and they've got walking songs and um and and it it gives you it does give you in little snippets it it weaves you into the culture of hobbits that's a very you know that's a very light culture that's a very friendly culture mm-hmm. that um, that's a very joyful culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, I really love that. Well, and I think it's communal too, like that they, they are mm-hmm. bound together as a culture. You know, you think about it, Americans don't like to sing together. And, and I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not America. America has been, you know, kind of a enigma in world history. Like there's, there's definitely not been a civilization quite like it, you know, from the way it's governed to, you know, the way, the way culture developed. I do think, I do think one of the ways that, that we have fault in America is that we are extremely individualistic and Mm -hmm. that, that individualism is, is really displayed in how vulnerable it feels to sing. And I, you know, to, to the shame of Christians, I think we, we have a problem in a lot of churches with singing being an obligation. That's not, that's not a thing that's from a full heart. People sing quietly or not at all. I, I'm very happy at our church. That's that's not the issue, but I've seen that a lot. I think the hobbits are, they show that they trust each other and that they they have bonds as a culture because of their willingness that, to sing together and to have songs for every mundane occasion because that's yeah. what they do. They just They feel really comfortable with each other and they have shared customs and culture. It's a really cool thing that he communicates without ever saying that. And I think, I think right. that's where, you know, he's so economical with the pen. Like he can, he says a lot with so little sometimes it's just, it's there if you want to see it. 
yeah we went long on that one but that's that's probably yeah. purposeful um yeah i think it's your turn now i think it's my turn okay. yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna uh transition a little bit now um and so one of the questions i wrote down for you is what would be your most desired visual or visually adapted moment i have I, I have that was a hard question for me i have a pipe dream answer and i have a practical answer i think so my pipe dream answer is if we could live in a culture that wasn't falling apart where people understood things and could make a really good adaptation i think i, I think probably fog on the barrow downs for because that carries like uh, i'm trying to emulate tolkien here that carries a lot of weight for me because if you do that you have bombadil but you also have this moment where I, I could see it almost like with a good filmmaker, the brooding, the terror of the fog closing in Frodo being alone, you know, the dark tomb just closing and then seeing the sword. I think I would really like to see that. I think it's a thing that a filmmaker would really like to do, except they'd have to have Bombadil and, mm-hmm. you know, like the movies we got, I think Peter Jackson would have really loved to do Barrow Downs, but he was definitely yeah. not going to do Bombadil. And so Right. There was no choice. I think my practical answer, though, and it's probably my real answer, is the beginning of a knife in the dark. I think I think the ring race attack on Fatty Bulger. I, yeah, man, I I w- we I was doing some research for this one, and Kelsey and I fired up a little bit of Fellowship of the Ring, the movie, and it made me think of how good that could have been because Peter Jackson nailed it. The scene where the ring rates come into the end of the prancing pony, and they're in the room he has like the he shows the camera of the beds with the lumps in them and then without any motion without any noise he pans that camera up almost from the floor and there's the five ring race standing there with swords drawn it is one of the scariest like most brilliant piece of filmmaking and I, I told her, I was like, you, you need to watch this. Like, just look at how terrifying this is, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. as he swings it up. And I, I think he could have really done something crazy with what Tolkien gave for that, the Crick Hollow attack. Yeah. I would have loved to see yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Crick Hollow attack scene was definitely, was also in my uh, top two as I thought through. Um, I think mine might be a strange one. I, I, I do think that it's probably something that's, darn near impossible to make a visual adaptation of but for me it's the old forest Mm. and i think that i think that there's this you can you can you can feel it when you're reading that there's that there's a sense of foreboding and threat but it's not the same as the black riders you know they, they they bring a terror but the old forest brings something that's uh that's a little sneakier and and I I could envision a way of, and I do I do think Jackson potentially, and he kind of played with themes like this. Like you could have the trees kind of whispering um, as they're walking through the forest, and even potentially having, you know, like Goldberry's voice singing like softly in or around the river that they don't understand yet, mm-hmm. or that's still a fearful thing. Um, because the forest is scary. And then, and then the like more overt scenes of, you know, them singing about the forest and a tree limb falling in the path. (laughs) Like there's some, like that's a comical moment that's, that can break attention. I think it's something that would be really hard to film, but I would just love to see, Mm -hmm. see that. Um, and I think for me, there is something that, 
you know, we, we, we grew up out in, you know, 40 acres of wooded land. And I, I can really specifically remember one time, I think it was like 10 or 11, where I kind of got, I, I kind of got turned around uh, in the woods. And, and it was really like, I was, I wouldn't say I was like, I was scared to some degree. Like I wasn't like mortified, but, um, but there's just that sense of being out in the wilderness in the trees. And it's like, it's really hard to find direction in the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know, that was one that, especially that for if me was number one. Yeah. Especially if it's working against you like the old mm-hmm. forest is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And there's ways to play. I think there would have been, there could be ways to play with that. I think it'd be very difficult, but let's stay on that. That would be it for me. Let's stay on that same yeah. strain then. And so I had kind of the two part, like we probably combine them. What do you think was yeah. the best movie adaptation from this book? And what right. do you think was the worst movie decision from this book? Yeah, I think, man, I think I have two for best. I have, well, I'll, <laughs> I'm going to leave the worst for what I think yours is. And then if it's not, then I may add it in later. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to do the best first. I think, um, I think the best for me is just the Shire in general. Mm-hmm. I think that the movie just flat out nails it. The, the, the costume and set pieces are perfect. The score that surrounds the Shire is just so perfect. Howard Shore's score on those movies is phenomenal, Mm -hmm. but they're like the, the, I think like the, the Hobbit themes struck me so much that like my wife and I played them, played one at our wedding. It was just like, cause it, it's a, it's a joyful, it's a party scene. It's, uh, but it's also an innocent party. Like the, this is a, a culture that we talked about early on does carry a lot of innocence to it. Um, and I think the movies just knocked it out of the park. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, best, best movie part. I, I definitely, the shower would be up there, but I, I'm going to go with about three seconds and I think you know what it is, right? It is, uh, I Oh, I know. Yeah. Frodo, <laughs> Frodo in the end of the prancing pony says, who is that over there? And Brotherman says, "Oh, he's he's one of them rangers, dangerous folk. They are roaming the wild." And the camera pans to Strider sitting in the chair, just as described in the book, with a pipe and a hood over his eyes, and he smokes the pipe once again with shot with with Shore's score going mm-hmm. with kind of that woodwind sound and the embers in the pipe light up his eyes as he sits there mysterious. It's probably my single favorite shot from a cinematography perspective in, in movie history. I, I, that's so good. I I can visualize it at all times. I watched it again three times the other day when I was going through, (laughs) I just wanted to see it. I wanted to, to burn it all in my brain, the lighting, the color, the music, it is incredible. The, the close second would have been that scene I mentioned, I think with the ring wraiths, in the end that that whole segment at prancing pony is just awesome it's a little different from the book but yeah he gets the mood it's yeah it's right on it's right in line i think with what tolkien wanted to happen i think it's really a good good adaptation right so you're gonna you want me to go first so you can carry on on the worst thing 
I'm going to, yeah, you go ahead. I'm not going to change mine either way. So, okay. I think, you know, if you've been listening, you probably know it's, it's actually less pronounced in book one than it will be later in the movies, but it really is just Frodo. I, I like Elijah Wood as an actor. I think, I think that he does a good job with the performance per se, but I think, I think they just got the wrong character. I, I, mm-hmm. it, I'm, it's not a criticism of Elijah Wood. I don't think. I, I think he did what they wanted him to do and did a good job of it. You know, draws the emotion. But I think, I think Frodo needed to be like fifty, and I think he, he needed to have a little bit more of a gentleman like pillar of the community but also kind of an oddball feel to him and what I think is the word I could have got past all that but I I think the part that I really can't get past is how Frodo at times is just kind of a piece of baggage that's being brought around that yeah not so much in book one like he I think he has a lot of good moments in book one in the movie but it it becomes a problem and I, I think that that problem really is personified with probably what we talked about in the last episode with Frodo at the flight at the Ford is not good. <laughs> yeah. I'll just put it that way. I, I think that the, the chase is good. Like yeah. Asphaloth, all that it's good. Frodo there is just, it's not good. It, it, it burns me. Like that's not, that's not yeah. Arwen's job. Like Frodo, right. Frodo should have been resisting. It's the story right. there. Right. You, uh, you teed me up perfectly because <laughs> my worst movie moment is the, the Arwen arc at that point. I don't have an issue with Arwen being introduced into the films and being introduced early and, and creating an arc that we somewhat care about that we have to reconcile at the end. But, but the, and we, and we did talk about it in the last three because in, I know it's tough because Glorfindel is a character that you can't, right? Like you probably can't put in the movie, but just that whole sequence of coming on Strider in the wild and, you know, like kind of diminishing his ability, his skill. Um, and then, and, and then the second, the second biggest part of that is, is Frodo's yeah resistance, um, I think, and, and I think twofold, like his physical resistance to the wound to, you know, like we know he's in pain and they did, you know, they, they showed us well that he's in pain mm-hmm. and that he's fading. Um, and I think they could have played up the part, <clears throat> you know, if Arwen wasn't on the horse that they could have had Frodo seeing the unveiled, uh, riders, you know, chasing him to the Ford that clues us in that he's he's one foot into the shadow world. Um, and then, and then his last resistance of, of sitting up before he passes out and saying, you shall have neither the ring nor me. Mm. And it's just like, we, and, and that's like, it's the, I think the two were those, your worst is tied into my worst is because they both diminish Frodo f- from what he is. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, uh, the most important thing you learned from this section like the, the thought to take away. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good one. Um, I think, I think the most, 
think the most important thing is the truthfulness uh, in friendship. I think that, um, man, I love that you picked on the conspiracy unmasked theme, but even like that scene is really great for um, being firm and truthful with friends. And I think we see that too with Strider is like Strider becomes a fast friend to the hobbits uh, for, for, for many reasons, but he, like, he's also really truthful with them. Um, and, and I think for me, that's a big theme in this, like the trust, uh, the trust of your fellowship, the trust of your brotherhood. And, and that trust has to come from having a hard word every once in a while. And some, sometimes it can be presented in, um, you know, in a light way, like Pippin kind of jabbing at Frodo, not carrying his weight in the pack, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, or being twice the hobbit that he ought to be or whatever. Like there's a, there's a lightness to that, but, but there is also a truth to it. And, um, I feel like that's a big theme and, and probably the, the biggest thing that I learned. What about you? Yeah. I think that's interesting. Cause I, I think it would be similar I, that, that you brought Pippin up. He, he's been a character that we've not brought up until now, but I, mm-hmm. I think I'll give him his due here because I think one of the most important things I learned, cause I, I'm going to split this and we'll ask another question about the true thing. I, I think the most okay. important thing I learned is that Tolkien understood well, that culture is super important, that, that cultural bonds are really important. And, and I think that Pippin and Mary and, and Frodo and Sam really show that Pippin through kind of showing how, male friendships really work <laughs> you know i think i think yeah. more than any other character really pippin does show how how male friendships work that it's it's brotherhood he's ribbing him you know that means yeah. that means that you're somebody's friend if you're a male if you're if you're walking on eggshells worried about offending somebody you're not their friend um you know when when men have brotherhood they are constant you know if you're out fishing you're making fun of the other guy whenever you catch one and and right. they don't, you know, it's, it's, it's always about that. And I think that's something that Tolkien just gets. He didn't have to put it in there, but I think his worldview is just so complete as far as this goes with his friends, the inklings, I think with, mm-hmm. you know, just collegiality that he, that he had with people that he came into contact with. He understood that, Hey, you, you know, it's okay to tell Lewis that you think Narnia sucks. it's probably the most wrong that the professor's ever been on record but but i mean you know imagine that imagine that you are an author and you spend all this time crafting these tales and your best friend's like yeah i think it's pretty lazy with the allegory (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know what it, it really is just the astounding amount of trust and i think i think pippin shows that that hey you know frodo didn't have to take him along but Pippin's going to be a true friend the whole way on, and and Pippin is going to grow yeah. a lot as the as the journey goes. I think he's the one that has a lot of growing to do, but I, I really like that. I think it's important to remember that that if we have friends, we need to trust them. I, I think that's yeah. a that's a key thing there. Yeah. Do you have another one you want to fire off? I have one. Okay. It's, it's a goofy one. Okay. Uh, I like it. It's like yeah. It's basically it's what's your favorite chapter title? Mm. So, right, like, it's it's interesting to me because I've read, like, when, when I read, like, very few books have chapter titles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that Tolkien gives them, and they're, and they're 
all of them are really descriptive of what happens. And I love that. But what was your favorite title of a chapter? I, I man, it's so I have tremendous bias toward a knife in the dark, but yep. I think I think that probably the best chi- title is a shortcut to mushrooms. Um, it's it's so clever. It is it's the play on words like and when you come up to that you have to like there's there's no reason for you to have any idea what that means at all right and then in such a cool way it is it's like the shortcut gone wrong they wind up there i think that that's the correct answer (laughs) yeah darn it yeah that was my answer too (laughs) well it's because it's right (laughs) yeah yeah it must be (laughs) yeah um do you have any any yeah, last questions. Yeah, I think one more, and it's it's probably you know we always we customarily end with a thought to roam on. I think mm-hmm. that answering this question is kind of in that vein. I think I think that we can leave it with that because it's really in that same deal. And it would be this question: What do you what do you think the most true observation is that Tolkien made in this book through his writing? What what rings mm-hmm. the most true? Yeah. Um, that's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) Save it for last. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I think the, uh, I think what rings the most true is the, um, the destructive like force of evil and what it seeks to do. Mm. Um, I think that, I think that's why Tolkien writes evil so well is that at its core, what it seeks to do is corrupt and destroy. Um, you know, the, the, the great evil in our world, right, is he's roaming like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And, and Tolkien plays on that with the evil that he writes. Um, and even, and so even the implement, like, so you have Sauron and then you have his, his servants, but even his, um, his implement, the ring, like, all it does is try to manipulate people into a, into destruction. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that's the most true, which is an interesting thing that the most true thing would be the, the evil thing. Nah. Um, but, but that's kind of what stands out to me. It, you, that must be right because I, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think my answer was, it was probably a slight variation on that. And it's the way we're tempted by evil. Mm-hmm. I think, there's there's few authors that I've read that explain the internal condition of being tempted by evil desires the way Tolkien does, and he he does it through the specter of wanting to put on the ring, and and so Frodo knows he has a command not to. He knows what the ring is. It's not like he he can't plead ignorance, and yet when confronted with danger, the ring presents him with seemingly the easy way out the way to make all the stress go away the way to make that to just feel better is just put it on and mm-hmm. feel better and like what sin truly does is that that temptation yeah. leads to death that he does not get anything that the ring promised he gets the exact opposite of that it's the the foolish thing to do but but the way Tolkien writes it is that Tolkien that that Frodo feels like he can't do anything else and that really is mm-hmm. when we're when we're in the sorest points of temptation, that is what it can feel like. And and so, you know, what Frodo should have done is he should have called out to Elbreth and the fair names and, and talked to Strider before he put on the ring, not after. 
And I, I think yeah. for us, we we're told that we have a high priest who's not unsympathetic. He's been tipped in it every way as we are yet without sin. So what we do is we run to him. I, I yeah. think there's no temptation that's, you know, that is, is there that can overtake us through the power of the Holy spirit. And I, I think too too often we, we rely on our own flesh and we give it a temptation. I think Tolkien nails that. Yeah. And I think that's a very true thing that, that he talks about. Mm-hmm. I probably should yeah, give one more good. nod here as we go. Okay. It, it's a little disjointed, but sometimes we do that. I, I'd written it down and I think I know your answer too. the, because we talked about it, the most surprising thing that you just didn't see coming from this is from a guy who's read the book, you know, I don't know how many times, like at Mm -hmm. least 25 times, you know, what was surprising to me. And I think we talked about it was how prominently Saruman plays, I think in the early Mm -hmm. chapters, even though he's not really talked about very much. Like, I think all the seeds are there for him to, to, do what he's going to do throughout the story. And I, I think it's there. I don't, I don't think it's reading into it either. I think there's lots of clues there. And I was surprised by that. Yeah. And we both saw that yeah. really quickly. Right. Yeah. It is interesting because his name pops up multiple times, um, you know, well, well before we're introduced to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good one. I think, um, yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I think for me, and it's kind of the same as <clears throat> the, the microwave character for me. I just like, I was just so surprised by the Gildor scene mm-hmm. and how far reaching it is, but also just the interplay between him and Frodo, um, the way he's careful to give counsel in a, in a situation that he's not fully aware of, mm-hmm. you know, like, so he, he leans on Gandalf because he knows Gandalf is m- more engaged in the mission. So he's, he's hesitant to give counsel in something that like, whereas, you know, like, we we often and I, I guess I'll speak for myself. Like I really like to have an opinion on everything all the time, and <laughs> yeah. and I hardly you know, ever and, talk. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know. And so again, Tolkien nailing what wisdom truly looks like, you know. Um, uh, and and then beyond that too is that like so not only not only was he not really engaged in the mission from the front end as he's talking to Frodo and so he's hesitant to to give counsel but he also springs into action afterward mm. and so he knows that there's great danger ahead and so instead of saying well Frodo be careful out there you know <laughs> he sends he sends messages out to to get help mm-hmm. um, yeah and, you know. And so I just like, again, like you haven't read as many times as you, but I've definitely in the double digits. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so like, how, how did that not stand out to me before? Right. (laughs) I know it was right there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I hope this was relaxing. You've definitely had enough time to finish your bourbon. If if it's, if it's still, (laughs) if it's still sitting around there, like, come on, man, just get it done. Just put it out of its misery. And um, I, we hope that you join us again next week as we we delve into the uh, the glories and the jewels of book two, and it's a real doozy to start with. So we got our work cut out for us in in dealing with how book two starts. So join us again yeah. next time on the Way Lesser Inklings. <laughs> <laughs>